I know it's been said many times from this platform this summer, but I want to add my thanks to the children of College Church who have helped us to reimagine these stories of Jesus this summer. They have been awesome. And uh, I know that for me, they've reminded me of my own acting debut, which took place in a second grade production of The Three Billy Goats Gruff, a classic elementary school play about a troll who lives under a bridge who bullies a group of billy goat siblings who simply want to get over the bridge where there is green grass and red apples that they can eat. And so I auditioned for the lead role in this production, probably because I wanted to be the hero of the story. But also, I think my main motivation was I wanted to have the final word. (laughs) Big billy goat gruff, the lead, he has the final line in this play, and I rehearsed it over and over again. I still remember it now. Are you ready? The moral of the story, being mean never pays. (laughs) Yeah, but I got cast as an apple tree. So that pretty much meant I stood to the side of the stage for the entire play wearing a piece of paper that someone had cut to look like an apple tree. It was duct taped to my stomach. And I confess to you that I was devastated as a second grader at being cast in the support role. But now, years later, looking back on that, I can tell you that I think this is where I learned the truth of that old adage, there are no small parts, only small people. (laughs) And also where I gained my appreciation for the fact that every year the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences offers one woman and one man the Oscar for best supporting actor or actress in film. But this wasn't always the case, I learned, because originally the industry only acknowledged lead roles in their productions. It wasn't until the ninth Academy Awards held in 1937 that supporting roles were acknowledged in any public way. And even at that time, for seven years, they gave these people a plaque instead of that prestigious Academy Award of Merit statuette we've all come to know and recognize. But in 1944, the playing field was leveled when the Academy began acknowledging and offering that same iconic Oscar trophy to both lead and supporting role winners. And this was a move that signaled an important reality, that the fullness of any story is dependent upon each and every person involved. And so this move edified not only a group of previously overlooked actors and actresses, but perhaps more importantly, a group of undervalued characters. And it brought attention to the fact that, though, that when we don't have supporting roles acknowledged in stories, these stories become far less interesting and perhaps even unidentifiable. Because after all, what would the Godfather be without Michael Corleone? Or Star Wars without Obi-Wan? Les Miserables without Fontaine? Or Forrest Gump without Lieutenant Dan? And yet, if you ask someone to describe for you their favorite story, you'll most often find that without thinking, they just glaze over the complexities and the contributions of the supporting roles in that tale, and they focus almost exclusively on the principal character. And it's funny to me, because no one would ever question the importance of a lead role in a story, but in order to see the fullness of that narrative, all that's happening there the roles of those who intersect and influence and engage with the protagonists are unquestionably significant. So this summer I've been been reminded that this isn't only true in Hollywood or in second grade classroom plays, 
but rather as we spent the past seven weeks on the stories of Jesus, on the miracles of Jesus, I've noticed a related and recurring theme here as well. And that is that the miraculous work of God is often that which involves supporting roles and secondary storylines. And I don't think this is something we see real readily because as Pastor Steve told us back in week one of this series, somewhere along the line, we started thinking of miracles as things God does to and for us rather than with us. Yes, it's true. The miraculous is founded upon the divine intervention of God into the human trials and tribulations of humankind. But by design, God uses the ordinary stuff of earth, fish and water, mud and spit, and us, ordinary everyday people to do his extraordinary miraculous work. So I've been thinking about it like this. Jesus turned water into wine. So it occurs to me, he could have prayed and then voila, those pots would have been filled with anything he wanted them to be filled with. And yet he employs the wedding servants that day. He chooses to employ them, telling them to go and fill the pots with water. Something so ordinary and so accessible to them. These servants knew exactly where the well was. They knew how to carry out the task Jesus had given them to do. And it would be these servants who at the end of the day, they were the ones who could attest to the fact that when they handed those pots over to Jesus, they were simply filled with plain old everyday water. And so I imagine the dignity these servants must have gone home with that day, knowing what their everyday labor had contributed to that particular day. Or how about when Jesus asked the disciples to distribute the fish and bread that he'd multiplied from a kid's sack lunch? By using the disciples' hands and feet, he empowered them. He gave them a foretaste of the work that was to come for them, all the while getting the food that was so needed by a crowd that was hungry and tired and looking to Jesus to fulfill their need. And my favorite is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. If I were Jesus, I have to admit, I think I would have just gone into the tomb and then like waltzed out with Lazarus, ta-da, and soaked in all the oohs and ahs of the crowd. Jesus didn't really even need to go into the tomb at all. He could have just called Lazarus forth from the grave and then watched the dramatic exit. And yet we're told Jesus intentionally involved others in this resurrection, maybe even Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha themselves, as he calls Lazarus from the grave, but then he tells these who are standing there to play a role in this miracle. He tells them to remove the gauze and linen that had swaddled, swaddled Lazarus for burial. And so it occurs to me then that these are the people who would first be seen by Lazarus as those bandages were removed from his eyes. And once again, we realize that Jesus doesn't do this work himself, but he involves others. I believe that when we can allow ourselves, when we force ourselves to focus on the others involved in these stories of Christ's miraculous work, we can then begin to understand that miracles are about far more than just the interaction between Jesus and a person in need. 
that the miraculous work of Christ is far greater in scope and reach than any surface remedy or healing, no matter how supernatural or spectacular it may be. And this is what I love about the story we just heard, read, and saw the children reenact, the story of Jesus healing the paralytic man. This was Luke's account that we heard today of this story. And he starts by saying, One day, Jesus was teaching. He sets us up right from the beginning to understand who's got the lead role in this story. But he goes on to tell us that quite a crowd had gathered there that day at Capernaum, likely because word had traveled, had gotten out, as he tells us earlier in that same chapter, about the miraculous works Jesus had been doing prior to this time. And whether it was because he was escaping the heat or had been staying with a friend or maybe had just gotten pushed back inside, We hear that Jesus is teaching that day. The crowd had pushed him in so far that he was now in someone's home giving this lesson. And as he's standing there teaching, he's interrupted by the sound of sawing or tearing, followed by debris and clay falling on him from above. And this is where we begin to understand the first group of supporting roles in this story. We have no real idea how those gathered on the roof that day knew each other. We don't know if the mat carriers and the man on the mat came from the same village and had traveled together that day to Capernaum for the sake of seeing Jesus, or if these guys had been making their way down the road when they came across this man on a mat and decided to take him along on their journey, knowing nothing more of him than what could have been conveyed in their conversation as they traveled. But here's this group And they've got this man laying on a mat and they carry him to this place where a crowd had assembled, the place they'd heard Jesus was. And that's when things start to get tricky because they realize there's no way they are going to push through this crowd. It is far too dense and people are leaning in, trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus, trying to hear what he's saying. And I marvel at the fact that these mat carriers are not deterred with this crowd Because somehow they know what Jesus is capable of doing. They believe that he can restore this man. And so instead of being discouraged, they step back and they take account of their team and they devise another alternative route to get to him. Some will tell you that getting up onto the roof of a first century Galilean house wouldn't have been that remarkable of a feat. The house was probably just one story high, the roof was probably flat, and it's more than likely there was a ladder that was accessible to it from the ground. And yet those details really only seem pertinent to me if you're a single healthy person trying to get from the ground to the roof. But this was a a group. In Mark's gospel, in his account of the story, he says there were four mat carriers, And they have a guy in tow who has no use of his arms or his legs. So regardless of if there were two, four, or ten of them, I don't think this was a real easy feat. And yet we read that they succeed somehow. And they find themselves now on the roof with just one more obstacle in their way. And that is the roof itself. And so I imagine one of them starts walking around, maybe puts his ear to the surface to hear exactly where Jesus is below. And then when he finds his voice, he begins digging, taking off tiles, ripping through clay, while another person in the party is sitting there doing the math, saying, how big does this hole really need to be to get this guy through it? And a third person is looking around saying, what are we going to use to lower him without toppling him off his mat? 
Essentially, we've got a construction project, some kind of physics display, and an engineering showcase going on, but it's all geared in the same direction. Get this man an audience with the healer. Back inside the house, I imagine people are wondering what's going on. They've begun looking upward towards the noise when suddenly blinding daylight comes through a hole that's been torn. And so as they're shading their eyes, they suddenly see a dark shadow filling that hole that it becomes closer and closer to them until they realize what it is, a man on a mat. It's possible that some who were in the room that day recognized this man, that they knew him as the town cripple, And if that is the case, then given the day and age and the culture that surrounded them, they likely were a part of the group who thought this man's paralysis was linked to his sin or the sin of his parents. I personally want to know what this guy was thinking at this point. He's suspended in midair in front of his peers. Is he hopeful? Is he terrified? Is he embarrassed? But as his mat gets closer to the ground, he suddenly sees this rabbi, Jesus, the one that those who have brought him here that day have told him about and said could do miraculous things. And he looks up and sees a chuckling face of Jesus who has just taken account of everything that's going on here, who has seen the links that have been gone to to get this man here in the room with him. And so I imagine him looking up onto that rooftop to these who have come seeking nothing for himself, but rather something for someone else in need. And he turns his attention back to the man who is now on the ground before him and says, friend, your sins are forgiven. What did this guy think of that? What did the people up on the roof think when he said, friend, your sins are forgiven? We don't know, because at that point in the text, we're introduced to another group of supporting characters in this story, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who though they say nothing outwardly, Luke tells us Jesus knew that they were doubting, that they were skeptical of what he was saying, that they believed it was not true. Jesus is not rattled by these skeptics. Instead, he turns to them and asks an important question. Which is more difficult, to heal a person's body or their soul? I don't think Jesus is picking a fight here or powering up. I think he desperately wants these men to understand who he is more than anything else. And so seeing that they're struggling, he looks back to the paralytic man, who's the co-star of the story, if you will, And he tells him to get up and walk home. And that's exactly what he does. We could stop there. We could read the story up to that point. But if we do, we have a one-dimensional understanding of what's going on in this story. We have a one-dimensional understanding of the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want us to turn our attention to the supporting roles in this account. And I think by doing so, we learn some important things about the miraculous. The first, if we look at the people who carried the mat, the guys up on the roof, I think we learn that Jesus employs everyday, ordinary people in doing his extraordinary work. It seems to me that beyond the physical task of carrying the man on the mat, 
these mat carriers who brought this man to Jesus also loaned him their faith. Because maybe this guy was at a place where he no longer had any of his own. He had lived with this disability for so long, he'd stopped imagining life any other way. You can just imagine as these mat carriers, this man got closer to this house where Jesus was and they saw this dense crowd, he might have just looked up at these guys and said, you know what guys, it's okay, just, just forget it, it's just not meant to be. Because again, the reality of anything different than what he knew had long since departed from his imagination. And yet these friends could see something more. Their faith in Christ and the potential for this man's restoration led them to think outside of the box and to be creative in using their gifts and skills to get him an audience before Jesus. But really, they just offered the everyday stuff of their lives. They offered their faith and their creativity and their sacrifice for somebody else who needed a miraculous work of Jesus. And I wonder how many of us have ever been in that place where we've lost our own vision for a different future and we simply need someone else to come alongside and pick up that mat. For my family, this happened a number of years ago when we had experienced probably what was one of our life's greatest disappointments at the hands of some leaders that we had previously held in very high esteem. It felt like our lives had been instantaneously flipped over and the disappointment and devastation was so great in us that we'd lost the ability to think about anything happening next, about anything good that could possibly come to the, us from this situation. And so one night we were in the depths of our despair and there was a knock at the front door and standing outside were two friends who didn't have the solution to our problem. But they had two cups of coffee and they had listening ears and they came with an abundance of hope that God was going to be faithful to us and that he would deliver us from this difficult season into a new day, one in which we would see the hope of God again and we would see new possibility. And so it was in the darkness of that season that these friends came and offered what they had. They picked up our mat and they offered us their faith in God at a time when we were struggling to find our own. And today I can tell you that largely in part because of their encouragement and their assurance that God was up to something, we began to also see and take steps towards our future, which would ironically bring us here to Marion, and it's been a season that has been filled with great hope and blessing. So yeah, the miraculous does occur at the hand of God, but it is also through the gracious and steadfast contributions of ordinary, everyday actions of ordinary, everyday people that we see God accomplish his great kingdom work. The second thing we see when we focus on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in this story is that miracles are actions of God that affect far more than one person or that relieve one singular malady. I don't know about your Bible, but in mine, this story, if you look, it says there's like a heading above the story that says, Jesus heals the paralytic man. Okay, but this story is about far more than just Jesus and this one individual. Because if Jesus was only concerned about the paralytic man, 
then I think the story would have ended after he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Because he knew that was the man's greatest need. And yet the story goes on to tell us that upon sensing the questions of the Pharisees, Jesus has compassion on these cynics in the room and basically says, look, I... I really don't want you to miss what's happening here, but because you have this block, this mental block, because you have tunnel vision and you're unable to see beyond this man's physical healing, the restoration of his body, I'm gonna touch him. And in so doing, it is my hope and prayer that you can see that there is something far greater I want to do here, both in him and in each and every one of you. Some scholars will tell us that this was a turning point in Jesus' ministry, a place where he became far more forthright and assertive in saying that he had the authority of God to do much greater things than anyone had yet come to understand. It's true. The aim of Jesus and his actions that day at Capernaum was far greater than restoring one man's body or even one man's soul. But in order to be able to see that, to see all that he was doing there, we have to move past the immediate and look at the greater picture of what's going on. So a number of years ago, my husband and I were working with a missionary in Southeast Asia. And he told us the story of a man in Southern Thailand who was living in a dominant Muslim region. The man went to sleep one night, a devout Muslim, and in a dream, Jesus came to him and revealed the truth of his lordship. The guy woke up and was fully converted, a devout believer in Jesus who had an insatiable desire to read the word and know more of who he was and who began sharing about Jesus with everyone he came across. I can't quite imagine this happening. This is surely a miracle. No one would doubt Jesus coming to a man in a dream and converting him through his presence in that dream. But if you stop the story there, then this miracle is only about Jesus and one person restoring one man to Christ. And yet the missionary went on to tell us that this man left that dream and became one of the most prolific evangelists and church planners in the area. And as a result of his ministry, thousands have come to receive Jesus and proclaim his lordship. So yeah, the paralytic man was healed that day, body and soul. But in the process, many more became aware that the son of man had authority on earth to do far greater things in each and every one of them. Finally, I think when we focus on the crowd who were gathered around Jesus that day, we realize that miracles don't always come in the timing and the form that we may expect. This is about the time I need to confess something, and that is that I think in the seasons of my life where I have asked God for the miraculous, I've kind of done it by just telling God what I'm expecting to have happen. This is how it's going to go down, Lord. And I don't think there's anything wrong. In fact, I think it's a good and noble and vulnerable thing to come to God and be bold and specific in our prayer requests. But I have to tell you that as I read over this text over and over again this week, it was the last passage that came right after Jesus had said to the man, get up, take your mat, and go home, that has stopped me 
that has arrested me time and time again. It says this, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things here today. But you read a text enough times, you start uh, branching out and looking at other versions of the scripture. And so I did that. I got out different Bibles and I looked at different translations. And it struck me as odd that that word remarkable changed depending on the version I was reading. Sometimes it said, we have seen spectacular things today. Sometimes it's seen, we have seen peculiar things today. So that got me really curious. And you know I'm really curious when I go and look up a Greek word, but that's what I did. I looked in the Greek, and there it says the word is paradoxus. We have seen paradoxus today, which could mean any of those things. Strange, peculiar, uh, remarkable, any of those words. But the primary definition given to that word paradoxus is unexpected. We have seen unexpected things today. And so if that's what people proclaimed upon the conclusion of this story, then I have to ask the question, what were they expecting in the first place? I'm guessing because, as we said, word of Jesus' miraculous wonders had started to make their way through Galilee. I'm guessing that a lot of the crowd came expecting to see a show. They just came expecting to see Jesus prove another iteration of his power and authority there. The spectacular There were probably some in the room who, like the Pharisees, came expecting to see Jesus trip up, to see him being found out for the fraud they believed he was. So in essence, they kind of came expecting nothing. And yet it occurs to me that they too would have been included in that part of the scripture that says, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. And then I have to wonder chronologically, we're told by Luke, that this whole scene takes place shortly after Jesus has begun calling the disciples. So it's probably not too far of a stretch to assume they were in the room that day too. And I want to know, what were they expecting? These guys knew Jesus, or at least thought they did, as well as anyone. So were their expectations any different, any more substantive than anyone else in the crowd that day? And what did they witness that was unexpected to them? My point is this. Everybody there saw a miraculous healing. They saw the man get up, take his mat, and walk home. But according to what Luke records as the crowd's response, there was something more that was happening there. This reminds me of the story of a God-fearing Christian man who was living in a village that had become overwhelmed by flood water. The man, being a devout Christian believer, remained calm in the midst of the crisis because he was assured that God would deliver him. The waters continued to rise. They had gotten to the place where it was at knee level and people started to evacuate from the village The man, remaining calm, looked out his window and saw one of his neighbors in a canoe who hollered, come on, get in, let's get out of here. But the man in the house waved him on and said, no, no, God will save me. A few hours later, the water was pouring in through the windows of the man's home. He's literally treading water, trying to stay afloat, when one of his neighbors buzzes by in a motorboat and shouts to him, come on, I'll rescue you. And the man shouts back and says, no, no. My God will save me. 
And the guy in the motorboat tries to argue with him for a little bit, but then seeing he's not going to relent, finally just drives on. Hours later, the water is so high and violent that the man has crawled up to the roof of his house to stay safe. He is cold, his village is quiet because everyone else has left, and he's fighting doubts that are starting to form in his head when suddenly in the night sky appears a bright light and a loud noise, and a helicopter begins to make its way to the man's roof. One of the pilots drops a rescue basket and shouts down, hop in, we're here to save you. And yep, guy says the same thing. Waves him off and says, no, no, God will save me. Eventually the helicopter flies on. So a couple hours later, the guy wakes up in heaven. He's sort of discombobulated and frankly kind of annoyed. And he looks at God and says, what gives, Lord? I thought you were going to rescue me. And God looks at this guy and says, are you kidding me? I sent a canoe, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What exactly did you have in mind? So often when we think about and ask God for the miraculous, I think we limit ourselves from seeing the fullness of what he is doing because we are laser focused on a sliver of the greater whole at what our limited human imaginations can conceive. And I believe God wants us to open up our eyes and see that miracles involve supporting roles and secondary storylines. He wants us to open ourselves up to the reality that the miraculous is not just that which God does to and for us, but that which he wants to involve us in. That he wants us to play a part in his miraculous kingdom work here on earth. And that we can do that by offering whatever we have towards the end of doing his good work, of picking up the mat of someone else who has a need, and then allowing God to accomplish far more than we could ever ask or imagine.